Hello and welcome to the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast, proud member of the ANA Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Burbridge. Over the past 10 years, data has become a superpower for marketers. But as a certain web slinger's uncle once said, with great power comes great responsibility. And let's be honest, brands haven't always been the most responsible with the oceans of data at their disposal. Seeding control to tech giants like Apple and Google has left our industry in limbo as third-party cookies are set to disappear, completely upending the current digital ecosystem. Our guest today says it's time for marketers to take back control of their destiny. Arun Kumar is the CTO of IPG and the CEO of Kineso, a data-driven marketing platform. Arun shared his opinion on how our industry became so dependent on a handful of tech companies and what marketing leadership can do about it. Let's start the show. All right, everybody, we're back in one of my favorite places on earth, and that is the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast Virtual Studio. I have a very special guest with me today, so I'm going to just uh, uh, go right for it. Arun Kumar, uh, thank you so much for taking some time out and chatting with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure. Uh, the pleasure's on this side of the table, my friend. Uh, so before we jump in, because we've got a lot, we've got a, a, a an industry to kind of pull up short and talk to. But before we do that, I want to set a, a bit of a level for the audience. So tell us about yourself and how your journey led you to becoming not only the CTO of IPG, but the CEO of a company called Kineso. So the journey really began more than 10 years ago when I joined um, IPG, specifically media brands in Asia Pacific as the head of digital. And at that time, there was this new thing called programmatic that was rolling through the world. Um, and at that time, I don't think many of us had the appreciation of how much it would change uh, the entire advertising ecosystem. But it instantly appealed to me because it was just so much in line with what uh, the promise of advertising was that we would become so much more relevant. And those were the rosy sunny days when programmatic was all about how do we get to customers at the right time and go impression by impression, et cetera. So that's where I started my journey. And then over time, I, I guess as we rolled this around the world and we started to scale it, uh, we started to see the opportunities of how a lot of the approaches of programmatic media could be extended to the way uh, the entire marketing communication ecosystem behaved, if you will. Um, and that's, that's where I really thought the big opportunities lay. And I think if, if you remember prior to the programmatic era, there wasn't so much of focus on data. There was a lot of focus on analytics. There was a lot of focus on research. Mm -hmm. uh, also sample or panel-based research, but there wasn't really an understanding of, of data per se. Um, and so when that started to happen, um, I, I really got excited by the applications of that in all those spaces where we have historically used proxies. Because these data sets meant that you no longer needed the crutch of the proxies. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when I made that transition around 2016, 2017, where I became the chief data officer, uh, first for media brands. And then that became an IPG role because once the wave starts to roll, there is no boundary because 
it's not just something that stops at media or at creative. Frankly, it stops at the entire customer experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it ended up with an opportunity for us to acquire Axiom, which then uh, completely changed our position in the ecosystem. And therefore, we, we then said, okay, we now need a set of capabilities that can build applications on top of this data layer. Um, and which is why we set up Kineso uh, and then Matakind. So it's been a, if you'd asked me 10 years ago whether this is the place I would be, I wouldn't have come anywhere close to where I thought I would be. But, uh, but I think the best part of this ecosystem is you never know where you're going to end up. And as long as you keep your mind open and you're willing to surf the next wave and the wave after that, you're going to find yourself in interesting places. Oh man, that there is just so much uh, great stuff in there. And I just, I remember back now because I've been, um, <clears throat> you know, a marketing journalist, if you, you will, for eight years now. And I remember when programmatic first came onto the scene and it was either you know, depending on who you were listening to, it was either complete snake oil or was going to change marketing tomorrow. And we are all going to just get perfect at it. And like, it, you know, book your vacations now because it's, it's easy yeah. street. Um, but there is no, there is no finish line. I talk a lot about this when I, when I chat with people, I think the the idea that there's a finish line is just over. So this idea of riding the wave and being ready for the next one, I think is just so spot on. And it's a mindset, I think, the entire industry needs to take and it's it's exhausting when you think about it but that's the reality you know what i mean it's it really isn't going to get to a place and settle so over the past two years we've heard a lot of talk about companies like google and apple doing away with their third-party tracking mechanisms this would be extremely disruptive for most major brands um it would take a lot of what that programmatic engine is uh, fueled by and um, essentially throw it out the window. But as we sit here, seemingly our entire industry waiting on the decisions of a handful of tech companies, my question to you is, how did we get here? It's a very good question. We, um, we've got here for a number of different reasons. Um, but there are a few that come instantly to mind. The first biggest reason why we have landed ourselves in this spot is because we've forgotten um, that brands have had relationships with people before any of these technology platforms have existed. And we have allowed others, namely these tech companies, and frankly, on the other side, privacy activists, and I would say misinformed legislators to become our voice. If you remember, right, if you look at some of the biggest issues that have confronted marketing in uh, the last decade, you will see that there has always been a very strong response from a set of marketing leaders, whether it's supply chain transparency, whether it was transparency in general, whether it's the agency ecosystem and you know the whole place of what's happening in the media buying space, you always found the leaders of some of the biggest marketing organizations take a very, very strong stance. And even now you look at social media and hate being disseminated or misinformation being disseminated and you see marketers taking steps. 
However, it always strikes me very odd that they never speak about privacy. They never speak about how the way marketing is portrayed in, very, in various spaces is actually inaccurate. And it is not actually truly representative of either the desires or the intentions of the industry or the practices. And that extrapolating and saying that what Cambridge Analytica did is what every other marketer is doing and allowing that narrative to exist out there is something that has really baffled me that why would you not stand up in big fora and, and use your position and use your cloud to talk about this? In fact, what I find even more surprising is that when we speak to legislators and when we speak to lawmaking bodies, we don't find marketers in those tables. We find lawyers there, definitely. Mm -hmm. We don't find marketers. So where are where is the marketing community? And I don't mean agencies. I am talking about CMOs. Where are you? Uh, and chances are they've either sublet this topic to their legal teams, and they see this as a legal issue. But it isn't a legal issue. Mm -hmm. It's it's actually a fundamental issue of who decides whether you get to build a relationship with a person or not. Is it Apple or Google or Facebook that decide that? Is it the privacy activist who believes that there should be no data collection who decides that? Is it a set of legislators who are very poorly informed about the choices? Or is it the people themselves who are confused by all these different discussions taking place and who actually are worried about a totally different set of things? Sure, they find the incessant email marketing campaigns and retargeting campaigns irritating, but actually what they're truly scared of is identity theft. They're scared of surveillance methods that would lead to their data being sold and therefore them making monetary losses. And by the way, when we're, when we're discussing all of this, there has been no focus on the industries that are dependent on marketing to succeed, the free press, democracy. And, and so I think that you know the, one of the reasons we've got here is we've allowed all these other people who have varied interests to talk on our behalf and we've kept quiet because we don't want to get into this morass. And, and what I always find very weird is that, you know, th there'll be the setting where senior agency people will be there, not our lawyers, but, you know, senior people. And we won't find our senior clients in there. We'll find their privacy lawyers in there. And it then ends up becoming very tactical. Mm -hmm. Instead of a strategic question of around, hang on a second, why is marketing being blamed for what happened in the political sphere, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason why we are here. We're allowing the wrong people to talk on our behalf. I'd like to um, change uh, subjects a little bit because I'd like to talk about Kineso, uh, specifically something new uh, that uh, you've all rolled out called Kineso Intelligent Identity. So in an earlier conversation uh, that we had, you said you wanted to help consumers find their brands. And that's what it just really stuck to me. So could you explain that to our listeners, what you mean by that? Yeah, so I think that um, the fundamental premise is people have been making choices around products and brands for years. And like I said, they th those choices have been made a long time prior to uh, uh, technology platforms existing. And if you wanna, if, if you wanna understand or if you want to question the premise whether people really care about brands, 
Just read the interview with the Coca-Cola CEO where he talked about shutting down certain brands and consumers reacting to it because these brands do matter to people and they've mattered to people for a long time. Some brands matter more, some brands matter less. So we in the marketing industry have always looked at it through the lens of, can I find the right people for my brands? But you know, brands are not what you as a marketer make of the brand. It is what the person receiving the message or seeing whatever you're doing with the brand makes off of your brand. So you can influence that. And if you do your marketing really well, you can influence that really well. But at the end of the day, it's still the person who makes the decision. And so when we were crafting an identity solution, we looked at the ecosystem and said, look, there's going to be a lot of fragmentation. Everyone, just as you described, is going to come up with their own solution. And that means that Arun Kumar is, is going to be understood in different ways, is going to have different identifiers attached to him and is going to be monetized in different ways by different ecosystems. So we said, rather than look at it from our perspective, let's think about how do we make it easier for people to connect with brands that matter to them? And the first thing that needs to happen is we need the ability to go across ecosystems and accept that there are going to be these fragmented solutions that exist in market. Of course, there is going to be a race. There are going to be different people who are going to come up with solutions that are better than others. But the reality is there isn't going to be any one single solution. There are going to be multiple mm -hmm. solutions. Let me, let me give you an analogy. The analogy is, let's say you, you go into a nightclub and there is, there's always low lighting in a nightclub. Mm -hmm. And let's say there is consistent lighting. There's no music. The party hasn't started yet. You're able to see people very clearly in the club. However, now assume that things have changed. The music gets turned up. The strobe lights are on. Happy hours it's over. Up. It's party time. It's party time. People are getting into the dance floor. Now, the first thing that happens is the noise level increases. You can't really make out the conversations as you could before. You have to shout to be heard. The second thing that happens is it isn't easy to see people. It isn't easy to recognize people because there are intense moments of recognition. The light blares on this person. You can see everything about that person and it's gone. And the next time the light gets switched on, that person may or may not be there. So you're seeing these snippets and that's what the identity space is going to look like. You're going to get to know a lot about people for these moments, these instants, and your, your, your mind is going to have to stitch them together. And that stitching is what intelligent identity does. And so we have to overlay deterministic and probabilistic methods together in order to say, here is the probability that this movement that you're seeing is actually the same person. You run basis that assumption, you learn, and then you, you change. The good news is we could not have done this three, four, even two years ago, because many machine learning and AI protocols are not advanced enough to be able to do that. But now they are. And so basically, that's what he does, which is instead of trying to dictate the commonality of the signal that should be received, we're just accepting and saying there are going to be multiple signals coming from people. People are going to indicate their interest in different ways. And by the way, it's not just in the digital ecosystem. It's also going to come from your call center. It's going to come from your physical store. It's going to come from an event that you organized and somebody gave you an email address. It's going to be all of this pieced together. And so 
rather than trying to push the ecosystem and say, you have to adapt to one standard so that we can all recognize, we're trying to look at it the other way of saying, how do we make sure that people are rewarded by allowing them to find their brands if they share data, just one? And two, how do we use machine learning and AI to try and make those connections where the platforms do not allow you to make connections? Now, where we've got to is we've managed to increase our accuracy rate significantly without really costing our clients much. So for the same amount of money that they're paying, they're now getting better match rates. They're now able to get in front of people who really want their brands. The relevance is increased. So which is why we look at, whenever we are looking at campaign performance as of late, we're starting, we read the same campaign data in a different way. One is to say, oh, we haven't performed. The other way is to say, we've not managed to connect the right people to the brands and or we've not made the appeal of the brand common enough to meet its business objective because the other part of this is creative mm -hmm. and, and you can't divorce creative from this and say i'm going to identify an opportunity but i'm only going to identify that opportunity from a media point of view the message is going to be the same so identity becomes critical for creative too and so it's about how do you it's about that's where the key plays an important part because how do, we want to democratize that to the entire agency ecosystem and client ecosystem so that even if you're not buying media you're getting to the stage of i want to understand these people and i want to know how many are in market what are they really looking for and here's the reality right everybody has a segmentation plan and then it meets the market mm -hmm. and then the segments are all very different from what you thought they would be and if you don't make allowance for that you're going to fail as a brand. And so the Kineso Intelligent Identity just allows brands to understand people better so that A, it identifies and says, okay, these are people, no matter what I do, I'm never going to be able to you know, push my brand in front of them. And in turn, what we're trying to do is to say, if I have reached a million people and if only 300,000 people have accepted the brand, it's not that I've failed the brand, I failed those people because mm -hmm. there were 700,000 people who came, who thought that this was their brand and it turned out not to be, which means I didn't just fail the brand, I failed the people. It's a big mindset shift. It means you start paying more respect and say, okay, if I don't think I'm going to be able to give people what they want, should I really be asking for that data? Marketers got so used to knowing I know where you're at. I know this is what you do. I know this is what you bought. That it kind of muted our intuition, which has always been what, you know, great marketing, it brings to the table. It brings that human element to the table. That's why you can never fully automate your marketing function because it needs that nuance, that imperfection to really uh, connect to people. This is more about understanding what's happening and understanding your chances of connecting to a person. Now, obviously, I don't want you to, to give the store away. And you did go into a little bit of how the key technology works. But what are these signifiers of the right folks are we, are, are we using? Are we going just purely historical data of, you know, X, Y, and Z tends to result in a purchase? Um, are there, is this machine learning trying to establish new mindsets, new reasons for, for, for purchasing? Well, what's kind of going on behind the scenes without giving too much away? Yeah. So I would say, 
you know, when you look at signifiers, there are those signifiers that change over time and those signifiers that don't change over time, right? So gender, for example, is not going to change or maybe it will, but it isn't going to change every month, every year. Location might change once in two or three years uh, for families. So, but there are certain other aspects that might change very rapidly. So you're going to have these rapid data sets that are coming in that are telling you, I bought these CPG products, I made this purchase on vacations, I did this, that, and the other. And then there's going to be really stable data that says person in household has two kids, and maybe 20 years later, person in household, empty nester, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. some things aren't going to move. What we're trying to do is we're trying to identify what variables are driving performance. Rather than us making the assumption and saying an auto intender who is in the market right now for the last three months is far more likely to buy a luxury SUV than somebody who's never been there. Well, here's, here's news. Here's what we actually found out in a particular case, which is everybody in the auto industry, and in fact, in many industries, is going for the same set of people, the people who are about to make a purchase. I'm about to go for a test drive. I'm about to book a vacation. I'm about to do something. And everybody, it's, it's literally like, you know how um, I remember how in, in India, when you go to certain places of worship, all the priests and all the people selling flowers, et cetera, congregate at the entrance. And they're all trying to sell you something. They're trying to sell you coconuts. They're trying to sell you flowers, et cetera. No one's there anywhere else. They're all congregated right out there. Okay. And it makes a lot of sense. You're going there to pray. You Just then you realize, oh, I need flowers. You buy it. But that's pretty much what happens in marketing. Everybody is there in the endemic sites trying to sell you the next test drive. And sometimes you bid against yourself in trying to get there. However, people are actually giving you signs of what they're likely to want months before. And so what we found is you're very, very likely to buy a luxury vehicle if you have just purchased deck furniture above a certain amount. Interesting. You are very likely, there are certain categories of products which have you, if you have purchased which signify either property expansion or house renovation. It has three to six months later, you're seeing sales increase when you address those folks. They're not looking for a car right then. And if you look into the data, what it's telling you is there is a significant life change that's taking place. I am investing in that deck furniture and all of that because probably my family has expanded or I have now recently moved into a suburban area. I am going to need a bigger vehicle. So I'm going to go away from what I was buying in a city or what I was using in the city to something big because I need to carry these things. So rather than wait till the very last moment when that person comes on, why don't you build a relationship with them? And when we do that, the conversions are just phenomenal. And that's what I mean by those are the connections that you want to get in advance. Mm -hmm. Those are the connections that you want to get ahead of others. And that's what I mean by making those connections. You don't make the assumptions. Now, when I tell you this, intuitively, it seems right. There's nothing in there that makes you go, no way is that happening. Mm -hmm. Of course it happens. But that is not the way segments are built. No. Segments are built, oh, here's the income. The person has this family of four and is, you know, going, is in the market for the last six weeks. Let's go get that person. Yeah. Right? You yep. never think about somebody who's going to buy the vehicle three months from now. It's just expanded his house, has bought tech furniture. It's not something which you talk about. Mm -hmm. And that's where the difference comes in. That's what gives an edge to one brand over another. Because you know what? Everyone has got this data stuff now. Everyone yes. can go into a marketplace and buy the same kinds of data 
tactically and win. That's not going to give you an edge. That is table stakes mm -hmm. now. Now what you need is to be able to see trends well before they become a trend. Yep. And I think yep. that that's a lot of people don't want to look at the parts of journey that don't have to do with the, them, that they think don't have to do with them. And that's where you're going to actually learn who your customers are as people. Um, so this has just been, this has been absolutely great. Um, and I want to just keep, keep on keeping on um, because we know, or we can be fairly certain in the next two, three years, whenever it happens, a lot of third-party data is going to disappear. One thing that's not going anywhere is first-party data. So I'd like to um, just pick your brain about what is the future of first-party data as far as its role in the marketing function, and what should marketers be doing right now to prepare for that future? I think that historically the belief has been you only need first-party data if there is going to be a transaction that is measurable. That's, that's sort of been the original principle behind it, which is why a number of the world's largest marketers have not really paid attention to it. Um, and now actually we're on the other end of the spectrum where everyone talks about first-party data. But I would, I, the way I tend to look at it is that there's going to be, there are going to be certain choices that marketers have to make. And that is ultimately, what do you want? You want great customer experiences. You want people to buy your product. You want people to love your brand. That's the most important thing. Targeting, segmentation, measuring reach, et cetera. All of these are proxies. These are ways by which you're convincing yourself that those final things are taking place, right? So whether, you're, whether you want to look at it through by sector or whether you're looking at it as a brand, the first question to ask is, what is the advantage granularity gives me? Second, are aggregates really out of the question? Third, if the answer to the about to is such that granularity is super important, then what is my data strategy and my data structure internally that is not platform dependent? And I, and I use that word importantly because there are many, many marketers who say, I've got Adobe or I've got Salesforce or I've got this or I've got that. And they build their first party data sets within these platforms. And then they scratch their heads going, but it isn't working for me. I'm, I'm not getting the ROI behind it. Or it's not connected to these other applications. Because here's what's going to happen. The more you're going to collect customer information, two things are going to happen the more places you're going to get that information from. Places that you do not imagine today and the places where your platform today is not structured to accept it, number one. Number two, more people within your organization are going to need that information. Your research teams are going to need it. Your R&D teams are going to need it. Your product teams are going to need it. Your distribution teams are going to need it. So if you do not have the ability to capture data at scale, and distribute at scale, you might as well just play in the aggregate space. Like you have to make that decision and say, I'm either in this full time or I'm not. Because those who are going to be half-baked and look at easy routes to do this are going to fail miserably. And so first-party data is going to be, and as, and as for many categories, it has already been the bedrock of marketing solutions. Having said that though, I would say that even first-party data is going to face challenges in the new ecosystem because if you're not able to measure success of campaigns, right? Even though I know that I started from this individual, if I don't know how, how that individual has responded to what I have said or done, it is still quite moot 
in terms of, okay, I started from first party data, which is why the question is, if I sell beverages or I sell chocolates or I sell you know, detergent, do I really need granular data or do I need segment data? Do I need you know, broad cohorts? Do I need to understand people as communities? Because what you're really trying to do is you're not trying to personalize for individuals. You're trying to create communities and tribes. So should you not be understanding people as groups of people as opposed to individuals? Whereas there are others where if you're in healthcare or if you're in financial services, I have very stringent legislation. I have to make sure that you are somebody who's qualified to receive that information, right? If you're in, uh, if you're in travel, yes, I, I know what are the five vacations that you've already taken. And so I need to give you an individualized sixth vacation option. I can't just group you up amongst 1,500 people and say, go to Mexico without any understanding that you've been to Mexico three times in the last five years. So that's the distinction. And that's why I think this blind rush for I want all these profiles, this is actually precisely the reason why lawmakers fault us as an industry. We don't think about the use case. We just rush to do because everybody else is doing it. And then the legislators say, hang on a second. You sell soap. Why do you need somebody's location data? You're selling soap. Do you really need somebody's location data? No, you don't. Now, mm -hmm. I can understand an auto company saying, if you're going into one dealer, I want to make sure you come into my dealer. But the fact that I'm going to a store, how, it's, how is it going to help? So why are you using data sets that you really, really need? And if you mm -hmm. scrape through that, you'll find that the signals that you want are possibly available at an aggregate level. You don't need that individual stuff. And so what I'm hoping is that as the third-party cookies go away, not only does first party rise up, but let's be sensible about that first party. Let's not collect it at levels that are unrealistic for certain businesses. You don't need it. You really don't. And, and in the past, things like artificial intelligence were not advanced enough to fill the gaps. Today, they're getting there. So if the gap cannot be filled by granular data, don't worry about it. So I would actually say the quality of your analytics needs to go up significantly in order to compensate for some of these data losses. And again, I keep going back to the nightclub analogy. The solution is, yes, somebody can come to you and say, hey, I'm going to be wearing this blue earring so that you can see me everywhere. That's collection of first-party data. I know you're wearing the blue earring. I know your name. I know which are the areas of the club you're going to. But you have to really ask yourself, am I interested in that one individual or a group of that group of five mm -hmm. people? And, and that's, that's I think, the hard choices that marketers need to make before they even get, because I know a number of clients who are investing behind CDPs and the next big platform. You have to ask yourself, five years from now, are you going to get the same return from the CDP as you thought you're going to get it now? What are you collecting? And by the way, this is why it, it always makes sense. Think of yourself as a consumer. Is it going to change the consumer's experience? No. Well, then don't do it. How does the marketing industry take back its destiny? What do we need to do in the first steps to where we're not all looking at a, a non-client side marketer to decide our future? I think there are a number of steps that, uh, that the marketing community needs to take. First of all, we need to get our own house in order. In other words, uh, we need to have a common set of expectations with the platforms to say, we need this. Second, 
Don't be absent when these things are getting discussed in Washington and Brussels. Don't send your privacy counsel over there and expect them to do your job. Because uh, one of the things that we, we found very valuable is we actually, in the past, prior to COVID, and now that COVID sort of hopefully going away, one never knows when it's going to go away, but hopefully as more in-person starts, we do digital universities for, for legislators and for policymakers because they don't truly understand how pixels fire and you know what signals are collected, what are not. And you know, here is the, the dirty reality, which is the story that we tell that every piece is connected and I know exactly where you are. That's not even true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not, not true. true. The moment the person goes from Facebook into Google, you've lost that person. Mm-hmm. Yet everybody says marketers track and they do this, that, and the other. And so when you actually use these digital universities and you sort of try to explain to data authorities about what you're trying to do, there is a greater recognition about what we're dealing with. And I would actually say we've had a lot of challenges in a lot of state legislations where they talk about making opt-out be the standard. You have to, uh, sorry, opt-ins be the standard where a consumer has to opt-in. And we talk about what are the problems that arise from that. And whenever we have these conversations, the brands that are most likely to be hurt by this legislation, not even present in these fora. So it's it's actually people like Axiom and Kineso, we're sitting in there and we're saying, have you considered all these other sectors of use? And the legislators go, well, we didn't know that. So there's a lot of education to be done mm-hmm. and hiding and trying to pass that to the privacy. Like, I don't understand why in you know big AMA events or in any of the events, we don't headline a big marketer talking about how marketing defends privacy. Why are brands good for people? Why don't we say it? Mm-hmm. Why are we hiding behind you know, our privacy council and saying this is legal? It has no legal implications. We're just talking about stuff that we've been doing. I mean, marketing has been the barometer of culture for a long, long time. And so let's not take the behaviors of a few who have not even done marketing, actually, mm-hmm. and confuse that with marketing. You know, today there is actually, even in Europe, the latest is that the ministries under whom many of these data protection authorities fall. Many of those ministries are waking up because the economic ministries are coming to them and saying, the actions that you're taking are costing me growth because a number of small businesses are getting pushed out of business. The cost of compliance is so high, right? So, mm-hmm. if, uh, you know, let's look at GDPR or even, you know, the California legislation. Even if I am not going to use your data for tracking, I need to have your data because if you come later and say, what do you know about me? I need to be able to declare it. So I have to make all these investments and all these processes because you don't want to get a funny email from me. And that cost, by the way, is going to be passed back to that consumer. Like, Mm -hmm. Do we actually believe that this cost of compliance is going to be taken by companies? No, it's going to pass back. Mm-hmm. into the hands of customers. Suppose if I went to a person in California and say, you're paying $4 more across all these products so that you don't get 25 emails a day. You choose 25 emails or spend $4 more. What do you think their choices are going to be? And so the, the misinformation is, is not just come from you know all the usual channels. They've even come from privacy activists who've not truly explained the cost of privacy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. If you do not buy a five hundred dollar phone, you're not going to get certain elements of privacy. What rubbish is that? How is a phone maker deciding the level of privacy that you get? Mm-hmm. 
yeah. right? And so, and so these are things that marketers should stand up and question. They have an absolute authority. And by the way, these marketers are the ones pumping billions of dollars behind big platforms, big mm-hmm. press, big TV stations, who are all dependent on these dollars. And by the way, those platforms are what are responsible for free speech. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's never discussed. That's never never discussed. discussed. It's never discussed. And so I I would love to ask some of the folks who are making these laws, you can't make laws in isolation. And if you want to make it in isolation, at least explain to people what are the choices. And I get it. I'm pretty sure work is happening behind the scenes, but behind the scenes doesn't help. You have to stand up because the others are standing on big platforms and they're talking about this. And, and here's the thing, as, as a technology company and as an agency, sure, I can go and talk about it all I want. But I think that this is much more than the surrounding ecosystem. The brands need to stand up and say, are you really saying we don't care about people? Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, has the marketing industry gone to the people making the laws saying, I want a common measurement platform across every platform in an aggregate basis. At the very least, None of these platforms must be able to say, I will not allow you to not measure what's happening on the platform. Mm -hmm. And I want it as a common standard. Think about telecom. Telecom has a common set of standards. If you're a carrier and you're operating on a band, does it say that if if I have a Verizon connection and you have a T-Mobile connection, does it ever happen that I can't call you because we're on different carriers? Mm -hmm. The recognition still happens, right? You're still able to recognize my number and associate it with me even though I'm in a different carrier, why can't that happen in the digital advertising space? Why yeah. aren't we focused on those topics? Instead, we are you know, waiting for this whole thing to blow over yeah. and hoping that nothing will happen. Well, I'll tell you what, if the California legislations are anything, your cost of compliance is just going to triple. Mm-hmm. And it's going to go so fast that there's going to be, a by the time that you realize that it's hitting your balance sheet, it'll be too late. Yeah, that is exactly it. Yeah, the moment you have to deal with it is far too late for you to do anything meaningful about it. So I'm going to shift gears just a little bit now. Uh, We asked this question of all of our guests. Um, I just think that it's so important to the future, to innovation, uh, to get as many bright minds as we can to share their POVs on this. So um, Arun, what are your thoughts on diversity, equity, and inclusion? So I, I really have had two sets of experiences. I've had experience coming from India and therefore the caste system. And I've also obviously had the color experience having traveled outside India for a long, long time. And, and here's, here's what I would say. Diversity, equity, and inclusion has become this thing now. It has its own officers. It has its own teams. But here is what it means to me. Whenever I travel around the world, I still notice segregation. I notice it here in New York. I notice streets where I only see white people, and I see streets where I only see black people. I went recently to uh, Arizona. There were many places where I was the only colored person. There was nobody else. And there are many places where I know, even in my own companies, that many people don't feel included. And the, the, big, the big realization for me has been, I've historically always thought of this as the separate thing. It's this thing on the side that you're supposed to do just like you know an incentive program and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. But to me, diversity, equity, and inclusion, if it is not part of your business, 
if it's not part of who you are as a team, you're going to fail, even if you have successful DEI programs. And what I mean by that is, and, and I once did an interview with uh, Don Lemon mm-hmm. on, on justice, and he told me something which has stuck with me. He said, we just have to accept that every one of us has been, will be, or sometimes flirts with racism. We do. I have done it too. So I can't say that I'm this guy who's never done it. I've done it too. But the recognition has to be that does not make you a racist. What it does, however, demand from you is the recognition that, hey, I am guilty of these things. I need to fix these things and I need to get better at it rather than either castigating people and saying you're racist or flipping to the other extreme and saying and, and doing what we're trying to do with, you know, areas like, okay, let's, let's not impose anything on anybody. And then the same people that we're designing to protect are the very people who are not protected by it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So to me, it's about recognizing that I am also the reason why probably certain neighborhoods have only black people and certain neighborhoods only have white people and certain neighborhoods have only brown people. So to me, when I go to my son's birthday party, the effort that I make is always reaching out to black families because I have white families as friends. I have brown families as friends. I don't have black families as friends and I want to fix that. And not because I want to become whatever. I don't really care about what that says about me, but I feel like I'm missing out by not knowing about them. And that to me is diversity, equity, and inclusion. I don't want to be a lesser man because I did not know certain types of people. I want to make the decision. For me to decide that that person is not worth it, it cannot be done on the basis of color or caste or race or where they came from, et cetera. That is actually self-limiting. So that's my big thing. So ever since Don, Don Lemon actually was the one who said, go meet, you know, a black family. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. Why am I not doing this? Do I have friends who have these different kinds of experiences? No. So I'm always every weekend spending my time with the same sets of people who all look and feel like me. And we're all sitting in this nice little bubble and having first world problems. And I'm like, no way, hang on a second. That kid comes all the way from Harlem to school. I want to know that child. I want to know that child's experience because that child's experience is very different from all these other kids who just live right across the street in Upper West Side and just walk over. Nothing against those kids, but you can't leave those others behind. And so actually, and I actually learned from my son. He has friends across. He doesn't care. He has black friends. He has brown friends. He has white friends. He doesn't really care. He has never once come to me and said, you know, I don't understand why that person is black or, or whatever. He's, he just accepts everybody. And I'm like, well, maybe, maybe I should be like that. Why do I care? So that to me is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, I rarely get choked up at a podcast uh, recording, but that was, um, that was really powerful. Thank you for that. Um, we're going to lighten things up now a little bit, uh, but honest to goodness, um, run this entire episode back. This is, this is a double listener. Uh, I think we're officially going to call it, but I run now a lot of people, uh, they kind of, they kind of shrink at this question, but I think you, you've got it. I, I think you're just going to nail this and I'm, I'm just, ex- I'm excited to hear why and the, the reasons behind it. But, um, my friend, what is your Favorite album of all time and why? You two, Octum Baby. Mm. Mm. I have talk to me. Talk to me. It is the my favorite album of all time because I love 
each and every song. And there are some lyrics that just stand out for me. Um, my favorite song, The One. Uh, one. I mean, mm-hmm. you can you can listen to that song and you can have so many different interpretations. And my favorite interpretation of that is when he sings with the lepers in my head. And I really imagine myself standing, looking at the beach and me talking to myself. So it's me singing to myself about all my own discrepancies between what I really want and what I really do. Uh, and the conflict that the internal conflicts that I have between, you know, my identity of who, where I came from, where I'm going, my values. It's just such a lovely song. I never tire of it. I love trying to throw your arms around the world. I mean, just the, the, the evocative words. It's not, it's not just the edges notes, but it's, it's the lyrics. It's like, a, like a fish on a bicycle. You know, these phrases, they've just stuck with me. So Whenever I, I need to get into a safe space, then it's you two, it's Optum Baby. And invariably at the end of my Spotify, when, when they say wrapped up and here's what you listen to, <laughs> one of those songs will be right up there on top um, because they are, they, they are just so evocative. I, I have not heard a better album than that. And I love, I love that album. I love it. I love to hear the passion. Then, and that's just so beautiful. Like, uh, yeah, your safe space, and it evokes so much imagery to you. That's just fantastic. And obviously, if there's not a bad cut on the entire record, that's gonna put it. You know, that's gonna put it in the stratosphere immediately. Yeah. So let's uh, let's bring it up to the current. Um, is there an artist you're listening to? A song, maybe a podcast, a book. What is revving your engines these days? Well, to be quite honest with you. I think the pandemic has completely screwed up a lot of different things. So very understandable. I used to be I used to be a person who read a lot of nonfiction, mm-hmm. and I've now gone to completely fiction. I, I have moved from listening to so Spotify this year said that one of the artists that I have listened to the most is actually Dua Lipa or Dua Lipa as she's actually uh, called in Albanian. Hmm. Uh, so that's actually data driven. So I am not making anything. <laughs> that is what Spotify tells me um, I've been listening to. But but I think right now I am really not doing anything deep. Disappointing as that is, my my logic is I only watch superhero movies. Mm-hmm. I only watch superhero TV shows. We I it. only watch live sports. Mm-hmm. And I will only read fiction because I have enough stress in my life as it is. I do not want more emotional twists. So if, if it is emotional, my the, the limit of my emotions is is watching Hawkeye or Mandalorian. Or any of that. <laughs> That's, um, I know that uh, Martin Scorsese will not call any of them cinematic. That's fine. But that's the level of my emotional capabilities right now. I feel you. And I, I, I really appreciate the, uh, the honest answer there. Because, yeah, I've... Um, you know, we've had uh, conversations with friends and like, I don't want the pandemic to reach my fiction. Like I don't ever need to see any television show deal with what we're going through. You know, that's not what I turn the TV on for nowadays. I don't, I'm not looking to be challenged by anything, but the day-to-day existence. Um, So Arun, before I let you go, uh, first of all, thank you so much. This has just been an absolute joy uh, chatting with you. Um, but if our listeners want to learn a little bit more about either IPG or Kineso, where should they be going? Where, where, where can they uh, uh, keep up with what you're doing? 
Yeah, they should just go to kineso.com. Um, they can get that. They can find me on LinkedIn as Arun Kumar. Um, they should they should be able to find me because I typically post on some of these topics. Um, but uh, the best piece is to go to Kineso or else there's 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 always my LinkedIn. My LinkedIn is the best way to know what's happening in the space because usually what I also do is I don't just write myself. I pick up what others have written mm. uh, in, in, in the media or other people's comments and I sort of share that as well because I do think that there are a lot of interesting people with interesting opinions. Um, and so if people want to catch up, that's the way of being in touch with A and K and M. That is perfect. Arun, thank you so, so much for being a guest on the Marketing Futures Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. And thank you for everyone for listening to me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Marketing Futures Podcast. Have an idea for a topic or guest for a future episode? Shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ana.net. Be sure to subscribe to the Futures Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you're looking to get smart on the future, point your browsers to ana.net slash futures.